0: Good morning. Don tells me uh, there are a couple of vehicles out in the parking lot with the lights on. There's a white uh, Toyota Tercel license plate 920ABX, and there's a white Nissan truck license plate 1A124261. So we'll all avert our eyes and... uh, (laughs) Those of you who have trucks uh, with the lights on, you'll need to go outside and take care of that, or or if you want to stay, we'll push push start to you later. Uh, There's also a white Buick out there with the license plate 173RX421PL72184SL17PQ10. Your license plate is blocking the driveway. Would you turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 10? And uh, we want to pick up where we left off last week and begin reading with verse 1. <clears throat> I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And we should not grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages have have come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Someone, I think it was W.C. Fields, said he could withstand anything but uh, temptation. And uh, I I think uh, we can agree we all from time to time are tempted to, uh, uh, to sin in various ways. But uh, what Paul is talking about in this passage I just read is the commonest temptation of all, one before which we all fall from time to time. We need to distinguish uh, at the very outset the difference between temptation and sin. Temptation is not sin. And we don't always have to succumb to this temptation. But my own experience is that this is the one that, uh, that seems to do me in over and over again. It is by far the most common temptation, and it's simply put: it's this—to want something more than God has has given. Now, uh, let me try to paint the big picture for you again, so that you understand the relationship of these chapters that uh, that we've been dealing with—chapters eight, nine, and ten—because, as I said, they're they're a unit; they're of a piece. Now, Paul's concern is this. What about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Now, that's not a question that uh, rises in our mind very often, but it was one that came to the Corinthians. In those days, as I pointed out before, it was the practice to bring an animal to the temple. Uh, Whether we're talking about uh, the Jewish uh, system of worship or pagan cults, the practice was the same. They'd bring an animal to the temple, uh, a lamb or a bullock or a dove or or some other offering and a portion of that sacrifice would be consumed but a portion would be left over and that would either be consumed in a sacrifice associated with the worship or the meat would be sold uh, to uh, butcher shops in the marketplace and uh, that's where you would get your meat. As a matter of fact, that was the only place you could buy meat in, in those days. And so the question was, what, what, what about Christians eating meat that's been offered to idols? Is that kosher? Is that okay? Is that something that, that Christians uh, can do? It's somewhat akin to the question that often uh, comes up, what about Halloween? You know, how should we as Christians look at Halloween? It has, certainly has pagan origins. Is it okay for our children to dress up as witches and, and uh, ghosts and whatnot? And uh, some Christians would say, well, we don't really want to be a part of that. And others would say, well, you know, the, though the pagan associations are there, there are also pagan associations with the days of the week and the, the days of our months and, and months and whatnot. So it's no big thing. You know, we're not really involved in occult practices. And, and, and Christians uh, sometimes uh, disagree and sometimes uh, vehemently disagree on, on this issue. Now, that is the kind of thing that was happening in Corinth. So they shot a letter off to, to Paul, and they wanted an answer. What, what should we do? Well, as you know, in Chapter 8, the passage we studied uh, two weeks ago, Paul said that idols are no big thing. We know, and some of you know, that an idol is nothing. It's just a piece of wood, a piece of brass, a piece of gold. And it doesn't amount to anything. Idolatry is something else, but, but idols are nothing. And so it's perfectly all right. I, he says, I, I eat meat myself it has been offered to idols. There's no big thing. But knowledge is not the most important thing. Knowledge always has to be mixed with love. And uh, the problem with knowledge, knowing that an idol is, is nothing, is that it may make you arrogant and make you may make you feel that you've got an edge on the other Christians around you and, and you may be flaunting your knowledge in such a way that you're hurting other people. For example, you invite someone into your home and you're going to have a backyard bar- barbecue and, and you f- flap a great big steak on the grill and you're... Your friend looks at it and he says, has that meat been offered to idols? And you say, oh, yes, but it doesn't matter. And he says, well, I have long associations with idolatry. I, I was involved in the pagan revelry. I was involved in all the immoral uh, practices, the orgies and the t- I, I don't want anything to do with that. So you have one of two choices. You can say out of love, oh, okay, I've got some salmon steaks in the freezer. Let's get those out. Or you can say to your brother, what is the matter with you? Why are you so hung up? You're a legalist and you can force this food on him in such a way that he or she, whoever your guest is, is damaged in conscience. They're made to do something they feel is is wrong. And so Paul says that that love always balances out knowledge and governs our use of knowledge. It's speaking the truth. It's, it's believing the truth in love that, that matters. You always have to Combine those those two notions equally, see. And we have to be willing, at any point, if we really love people, if we really care about them, to set aside some liberty, some right that we have, in order to minister to them. Right? Now, in chapter 9, Paul uses himself, as, as Clark told us so well last week, he uses our, uh, us as an example, or pardon me, he uses himself as an example of one who set aside any right, Legitimate right in order to minister to others. Paul was an apostle, and he had the right to be supported as an apostle. He didn't have to work for a living; he could have asked the churches to pay him a salary as he itinerated from place to place. And he had the right to ask for support for his wife as well. Uh, apparently, Peter was taking his wife with him as he traveled from place to place, and and they supported his his family as he ministered. And Paul said, "I, I have that that right, but I." I I'm not going to insist on that right because there's some wherever I go who think I'm only in it for the money. And so I set aside my right to be salaried. Paul worked long hours into the night making tents out of leather, sewing leather to make tents and capes and jackets in order to support himself. So I'd rather do anything than cause someone to miss out on the good news because I insisted on my, on my rights. And then if you recall from last week, he uses this wonderful illustration from track and field. He he said, uh, "Don't, don't you know that in a race everyone runs but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last. We do it to get a crown that lasts forever. Paul, I think Paul used this particular metaphor because just up the road from Corinth was uh, the site of the Isthmian Games. If you can picture Greece in your mind, it appears Macedonian, Upper Greece, and then the, this peninsula of the Peloponnesus that looks like a, uh, the fingers of a hand reaching down into the Mediterranean is where Corinth was, and that little narrow Isthmus there, was where Corinth was located, and uh, there was a, a huge stadium there, larger really than anything we have in the United States today, in which they held the s Games every three years. And people would come from all over the Greco-Roman world to, to compete. And they had very strict training rules. They didn't let anybody in. It's like our Olympics. You had to sign a statement that you had followed a certain diet and a certain uh, training regimen before you could even get into the, into the Games. Tough to get in. And uh, Paul said that, it, that that's, that's the way it is in the race of life. We're all running for a goal. And the goal is loving God and loving people. That's the business of life. That's what we're here for, not to make a million dollars, not to make the million dollar roundtable, not to become the CEO of our, of our company. Not to, to be upward mobile always. We're, the business of life is loving God and loving people. That's what it's all about. And Paul said, I, I get up every morning and I remind myself what my course is today. It's to give myself in devotion to God and give myself in devotion to his people. And anything that impedes that has to go. Going back to the analogy of uh, track and field, you know, you don't train on beer and, and pretzels for a year and win races. You just don't. You have to eat right. You have to run. Uh, you have to train right. And, and Paul is saying, I'm going to deal with, with, with whatever the impediments are. I'm, I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to set aside certain rights and privileges that I have because the greatest thing is, is ministering to the needs of others. He puts it... Uh, This way, in verse 19 of chapter 9, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I am subject to no one. He's not codependent. He doesn't have some need to be needed, some, some urge to be wanted. He's not driven to serve on that basis. He's subject to no one except God, but he makes himself a slave of everyone in order to... To lead them into a relationship with Christ and help them to grow in that relationship. In verse 22, he says, to the weak I became weak. To win the weak I've become all things. To all men. That by all possible means I might win some. See? The greatest thing for him is helping people come into a relationship with Christ. And grow in that relationship. Everything else pales, he says, in significance. See? So no austerity is too great in order to meet that need. He gets up every morning and he says, all right, I'm going to run the race this way and I'm going to deal with the impediments that keep me from loving God and loving people. Now, in chapter 10, he he, he adduces another argument. Here he illustrates from the life of Israel. In chapter 9, he illustrates from his life. In chapter 10, he takes us back into history. And uh, the story of of Israel and uh, the sad fact uh, in their history that something disqualified them. They, they didn't run the race; they were expected to race. They were they were set aside because they didn't deal with certain hindrances. Now uh, let's look at uh, at chapter ten and and see how Paul elaborates uh, uh, this theme. Uh, just a couple of observations: five times in the first. Five verses, Paul uses the the word all. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food. And the NIV uh, omits the all in the next phrase, but it's there in, in Paul's text. And all drank the same spiritual drink. That corresponds to the all in verse 24 of chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all run? Only one wins. All of Israel ran. But most of them, he says, were were disqualified. Now, what he does in these verses that I read to you earlier is first uh, remind us of the history of Israel in verses 1 through 10. And then he applies their example to us. Look at verse 11. These things happened to them. This is history. This is not myth. This is data from history. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So what we need to do is look at the history of Israel, see the warnings that are there, and apply them to our own situation if we're going to win the, run the race in such a way that we're not losers, that we win. Now, what he does in verses 1 through 4 is gather together a number of, uh, uh, a number of references to the resources that Israel had in, in the Old Testament. Paul says, uh, our forefathers were all under the cloud. The cloud was what uh, Jews in later days came to call the Shekinah. It comes from the Hebrew word that means to dwell. Uh, if you happened to wander, in, you were wandering through the desert and you, you came upon Israel's camp, you'd see a huge encampment of uh, probably two million people. That's a lot of folks spread all over the desert in tents, arranged in an organized fashion, in the center of the campsite was a, a larger uh, tent, uh, the sanctuary of God. And over the sanctuary was a cloud, huge cloud. Now, when it's usually depicted, it looks like a cloud going straight up. Actually, it probably looked more like a mushroom cloud because uh, the Old Testament reference, uh, references to it indicate that Israel was sheltered from the heat and from the cold. Of the desert by this cloud. Now, the cloud was called the, the, the Shekinah, the Shekinah, or the dwelling place of God because that cloud symbolized the presence of God in His people. He was Emmanuel even then, God with us, God living right in the middle of, of His people. That, that was one of, the, uh, one of the things that set Israel apart from all the other nations. Secondly, He says they all passed through the sea. That, of course, is a reference to the parting of the Red Sea. Something happened to Israel for which there's no analogy in history. I've mentioned that before. Never before or after in history has a whole nation been taken out of a nation and, and taken to another site and made into a nation there. Uh, they They were slaves in Egypt, and they were called out of Egypt. They were delivered by the... Uh, through the Red Sea, the Red Sea parted and they walked through on, on dry ground and then the sea closed. And their enemies were, were uh, they were protected from their, from their enemies. It's a wonderful picture of our salvation that we are transplanted from the kingdom of darkness and slavery into the kingdom of God's dear son. That's okay. what happened to Israel. Uh, furthermore, he says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now whenever we read baptism in the in the Bible, we always think water. You know, almost like those people that witch for water, you know, or wand goes down. But the the word baptized in the New Testament, is really uh, just a, an anglicized form of the, of the Greek word. In other words, we've made an English word out of the Greek word baptizo that doesn't have anything whatever to do with water. It has to do with identification. It means to place something into something else. Now, we think water, but when a Greek read this passage, he would think being placed into something. And so when, when Paul says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, he means that they were identified with, with Moses. They were an aggregation of people in, in Egypt. They became a congregation when Moses led them through the, the Red Sea. So there was, they became part of a larger body of people. There was support and there was encouragement and there was, there was caring and then there was leadership. All of those things grew out of their identification with with Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. It's a reference to the manna. For 40 years while they were in the wilderness, they were fed every day by the the bread that came down from heaven, as as Jesus describes it. It's called manna because the first time they saw it, they, they got up one morning, they were hungry, they'd run out of food, and and they got up one morning and they looked, and on the bushes all around them was something like hoarfrost. And they stripped it off and tasted it, and it was sweet, tasted like coriander and honey. And and uh, they said in Hebrew, they said, "Manu, what is it?" And the name stuck. Manna just comes from that question, "What is it?" And uh, that was the food that they that the, that they received day after day after day. They never lacked for it. Didn't fall on on the sabbath on saturday but it fell 6 days out of the week and they, and there was twice as much when they went to gather it on the day before the sabbath so they always had had enough to eat and uh, then paul says they they drank the same spiritual drink drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was christ it's a reference to the the, the rock that moses was commanded to strike and uh, the book of Psalms says it was a flinty rock. This wasn't, uh, uh, this wasn't sandstone. You might expect sandstone to contain a reservoir of water, but this was, this was granite or flint. And Moses struck the rock and out gushed this uh, copious supply of water enough to feed the millions, of, or to, to slack the thirst of the millions of, of Israel. And Paul says that rock accompanied them. That's interesting to think about. You know, I, when I first read that and thought about it, I, I was reminded of that rock that chased Harrison Ford out of the cave. You know, sort of a big rock that followed them everywhere they went. You know, colump, 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 colump. And every time they turned around, there was a rock they could strike. But the, that, that's not what Paul means. What it means is this. Everywhere they went in, in, in the desert, they, they couldn't carry enough water to feed that vast horde. Wherever they went, there was a rock, some rock. And Moses would strike that rock, and out would come the water. As a matter of fact, Psalm 78 refers to the rock in the plural, the rocks that were struck and from which the water flowed. That's what Paul means when he says the rock accompanied them. They'd they'd move from this place in the desert to this place in the desert, and they'd set up their camp, and they'd start looking around for water, and there were no oases, no springs, no streams, no rivers, just a big rock. And Moses would strike the rock, and out would come the water. And interestingly enough, Paul says that rock was Christ. It gives us a a clue to how to read the Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament, to see Christ everywhere. It just keeps turning up in type and symbol and metaphor and illustration in the history of Israel. It's on every page, you see, the, the one who is to come. You see, here's the manna that fell every day, and here's the water that, that slacked their thirst whenever they they had. You see, they were richly provided for. They had all the necessities of life, few of the luxuries, but all of the the bare necessities, the real necessities of life. Food, drink, protection, guidance, love, care, assurance, uh, the esteem of God, the presence of God, the love of God. They had everything they could ever, ever want. But, but, and, and Paul uses the strongest adversity that can be used in the, in the Greek language. God, he says, was not, pl- not pleased with most of them. How do we know that? Well, their bodies were strewn all over the desert. It's a masterpiece of understatement. Do you know how many people made it into the land of, of the original two uh, two million? Caleb and Joshua and a few others that were under the age of of 20, when they turned back at at Kadesh Barnea, very few of them made it in. And Paul raises the question, why? Why? These people had everything they could ask for. They had all the resources of God available to them, and they they were disqualified, to use Paul's term back in chapter 9. They, they were castaways, not that they lost their relationship to God, but they lost their lives. They experienced uh, not only the death-like state of the desert, but they they, they themselves experienced, uh, experienced death. Why? Well, Paul tells us, verse 6, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now we have to think about that phrase. What, what does it mean to set your heart on evil things? Is he talking about sexual immorality? Is he talking about drunkenness? Is he talking about drug abuse? Is he talking about uh, theft? Or uh, what, what does he have in mind? Well, if if you have a Bible that has side notes or footnotes. Uh, your your attention would be drawn to an Old Testament passage, Numbers chapter 11, because that phrase, setting our hearts on evil things or craving evil things, as some of the translations put it, actually is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. Now, if you have an Old Testament, turn back to the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 11. They were on their way from Sinai. It took them a few months to get to the mountain of, of Sinai or Horeb, as it's sometimes called. They camped there for a year while they received the law, and they built the tabernacle and organized themselves into a, a congregation. And then they began to march north for the promised land. Three days out of Sinai, we're told the rabble began to crave other food. That's, that's the phrase, crave other food that's the phrase from which Paul takes his his quote and you begin to see how shrewd Paul is in his use of these Old Testament passages because you'll see in every case it has something to do with eating and drinking which of course is the issue the eating of of food that's been sacrificed to idols the rabble were the mixed multitude they were the, 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 the unbelievers in Israel's midst the Egyptians that had come with them who were attracted to their, their God but had not yet committed themselves to him. And they caused tra- trouble all through the wilderness wanderings. and The, the rabble began to crave other food, and, and they infected the Israelites. The Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlics. But now we've lost our appetite, and we never see anything but this manna, this yucky stuff that we have to eat day after day. That we, it always tastes the same. Doesn't matter whether you fry it, fricassee it, boil it, make pancakes out of it, banana bread, manicotti, whatever. It always tastes the same. We we don't want this stuff anymore. We want pizza. We want to go back into, into Egypt, the, the leeks and the garlic and, and the onions and, and the meat there. See, and they, they started to complain. and See what the problem was? They craved something other than what God had given. Right? They weren't content with God's supply. Now, that passage sets the... Sets the pace for us for the rest of the, uh, <clears throat> rest of the chapter. Let me read on, beginning with verse 7. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's, an, that's a reference to Exodus 32. Israel was camped at the foot of the mountain. Moses went on the top of the mountain to receive the law. He was there for a long time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the people began to get restless and they wanted to have their own sacrifices. They wanted to have their own sacrificial meals. They were already weary of the manna. And they began to complain. And they said to Aaron, this fellow has gone. We don't know where. You be our leader. You make a God that we can follow. And uh, that's when Aaron gathered up their gold uh, earrings and rings. And he he made a golden calf out of it. And they began to worship around it. And they ate and they drank and they danced, is the way the text puts it. They began to fall into Paul calls pagan revelry here, orgiastic uh, revelry. And it's all because they wanted something more than God had given. There's a delay. See, Moses was on the mountain, and they wanted what they wanted now. And they fell into idolatry. And then uh, Moses uh, goes on, uh, working now backwards through the book of uh, of Numbers. He starts in November, uh, November, Numbers 25, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, twenty thousand of them died. This was just before they went into the promised land. they were in the plains of Moab in a place called Shatim, and uh, some of the the, the young, young, lovely young ladies of Moab invited them over to a feast, an idol feast, and the, the way the Hebrew text puts it, they coupled themselves off and worshiped Moab. In other words, they went with these young ladies to their tents, and they were guilty of sexual immorality, and many of them died. Plague swept through Israel as a result. See, they, again, they wanted something more than God had provided. The next quotation is from Numbers 21. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did and were, and were, were killed by, uh, by snakes. That's uh, what happened when they were uh, just prior to the episode I mentioned. Just a moment before, they were on their way up to the plains of Moab. They had to circle around Edom. They ran out of of food and water. By this time, their their flocks were all gone. They they had they had nothing. All they had again was the manna. And they said, "We don't we don't want this manna. We, we, we've we've had enough of this. Give us give us something more." And And some of them died as a result. And then finally, the last reference is in Numbers 16. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Here he's talking about a a rebel by the name of Korah and two of his friends, Dathan and and Abiram, who, who accompanied him, who came to Moses and said, Look, You told us you were going to bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey. As far as we're concerned, Egypt was the land that was flowing with milk and honey. Where is this land of milk and honey? And and they pushed God too far. That's what it means to to test the Lord. They were trying to see how far they could push him before he reacted. Because, see, all the way through the wilderness, they complained about food and water. They didn't like what God gave them. And what Paul is saying is that, that this caused a great deal of trouble in Israel they became idolaters. They, they were guilty of sexual immorality. They pushed the Lord to the limit, and they, and they grumbled. You know, we, we don't think of grumbling and complaining as a sin that's uh, on the same level with sexual immorality or idolatry, but Paul puts it in there because, you see, grumbling and complaining is, is just saying God hasn't given me what I, what I need. See. I need another spouse. I don't like the one I have. I need more beauty. I need more money. I need a better home. I need a little more peace and quiet. I need esteem. I need someone to love me. I'm in a setting where I'm not loved enough. I need something more. And it's that attitude of wanting more than God has given to us that frustrates the implementation of God's goals for us. We cannot love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And we cannot love people if that's true. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse verse 11, These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages have come. We live in the last days. The last days began when Jesus came because he is the consummation of all the ages. And now we live in that age that uh, he calls the end times. And these things are warnings for us who lived during that era. So he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's why I said this This is the temptation that blindsides us. We think we're doing so well. We're leading Bible studies. We're memorizing scripture. We may even be leading people to Christ, and, and we're spending time in prayer. But down underneath is that is a, is a discontented heart. We want something more than what God has has given to us. And Paul says, "Watch out! That's the one that'll get you." See, look what it did to Israel. Got to deal with that because if you think you're standing, that's the one into which you're gonna you're gonna fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And that's why I say this is the commonest temptation of all. To get resentful and bitter because we have not gotten our way. To be bent out of shape because someone uh, spoke harshly to us. Or didn't acknowledge our uh, worth or attribute to us the esteem that we feel we should, we should have. I experience that temptation daily, you do. Carolyn and I uh, uh, spent some time this last week just talking about the things, the little foxes that spoil the grapes, the little things that mar our, our relationship. You know, All of us have those times when we get out of phase with each other where we lose that sense of intimacy and really caring and love for each other. And, and if you start looking at, at getting honest with yourself, you'll see that what's at the bottom of that usually is some yearning for something more. Than what God has given that keeps us from giving ourselves wholly to one another. See, if you just love me more, if you just didn't do that thing that bugs the tar out of me, if, 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 if you were just more caring, if, if you were more sentimental, if you were more romantic, if, if, if we just had this or that or the other, then we could really love each other. See, and, and in every case, it's a longing for that something more. That God is not given, and Paul says that's, that's common temptation. That's the commonest temptation. But God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. What's the way out? Well, we don't have to guess. Paul tells us in verse 14. Fleeing from idolatry, See. Uh, that word "way out" is actually the word for a for a, a valley, a, a defile, a, a, a pass. You're, you're enclosed in a in a, 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 a group of mount, set of mountains. You can't get out. But here, here's the way out. Here's the exit. What's the way out? Well, it's to recognize what's going on. To recognize that wanting something other than what God has given to us is idolatry, pure and simple. See? It's worshiping at the foot of some other commodity or some other person or some other thing that we think is going to give us life instead of saying, I do not need those things. What I need is God and God alone and worshiping at his feet. I want to tell you a story. It's one that Jesus told. If you want to follow along, you can turn to John 6. But I'm not going to read much of it. It was the passage that was read earlier that you may not have been able to hear. The reason you couldn't is because I had my mic on. It wasn't a technical difficulty. It was a knot in my head. Uh, chapter 6 opens with Jesus feeding the 5,000. Wonderful story. little boy brings his lunch to Jesus. Takes a few pieces of bread, a couple of fish, starts breaking pieces off, passing out the food. Fed 5,000 men plus women and children. A lot of folks to feed. So everybody beds down for the night. Jesus gets in his boat, goes across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. People get up the next morning and they say, where is he? It's breakfast time. And they they can't find him. It's gone. So they commandeer uh, or or commission some boats that were uh, were anchored there. They chase after him go across the sea. When they get there, they say, where'd you go? What, What are you doing here? It's breakfast. Time to feed us again. Jesus says, do not work for the food that spoils But for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, on him, or on it, actually, God has placed his seal of approval. In other words, there's only one source that satisfies, and that's Jesus. And God has placed his seal of approval on him. Are you hungry? This is where you go to be fed. If you try to live by bread alone, you'll die of starvation. Only Jesus satisfies, that's what he's saying. So they say, well, all right, if we want to, you want us to work for the food that endures to eternal life, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on me, whom he, whom he has sent. I just told you, he said. I couldn't make it any clearer, but I'll try again. Believe on me. They say, what marvelous sign will, will you give that, that we may believe on you? It's how you just fed the 5,000 the day before. What sign will you give us that we may believe? You know, what are your credentials? Why should we believe in you? Now, Moses, there was the man. There, there was someone you could believe in. Moses fed us in the wilderness. And Jesus said, no, you're wrong on two, two points. It wasn't Moses that fed you. It was your father who fed you. And secondly, It wasn't that bread that came down from heaven that that ultimately fed you. That bread symbolizes the bread that has come down from heaven. They say, Lord, give us this bread. He declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You understand what he's saying? There are those moments when we crave something other than Jesus. And if we succumb to that temptation, we'll never be able to love God or love his people. We'll always be fighting for our rights and looking out for ourselves, trying to satisfy ourselves at one broken cistern after another. The way to deal with that temptation is to flee from that idolatry and And to flee to our Lord Jesus and eat and drink of him. Come to him. As as he put it later, eat my flesh, drink my blood. How can we do that? Well, He's already said, he who comes to me will never be hungry. He who drinks of me will never thirst. Drinking, eating and drinking is coming and believing. Coming and believing. Coming and believing. Putting your roots down into into him letting him satisfy you with his love and his protection and his direction see we have everything that israel had we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of of light we have god's presence with us he is our shekinah he is our emmanuel he doesn't dwell beside us he dwells within us and then we have the supernatural which is what paul means by spiritual we have the supernatural food and And drink that he supplies. And once we grasp that notion that we don't need anything else. That's why David could say, when the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let me leave you with uh, this word from the writer of Hebrews. Be content with what you have, he said. Be content with what you have. Because God has said... I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The soul that on Jesus has fled for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to take, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. We come, O Christ, to Thee. We come to You as that, as that Rock struck for us, uh, given to us, so that we can eat and drink of of Him. And we pray that as we as we read Your words, we would not see them as words on the page, but the means by which we graze upon You. We Feed upon your your goodness, your grace, your love, your care. Those moments when we're so terribly upset, discontented, wanting something more than we have, help us again and again to remember that you're everything that we need, that we really can get by in this world without, without human love or human affection. That you can be just a just what we need to settle our hearts and we ask that we'd be willing uh, since that's true that we'd be willing to set aside any any right that we have any liberty or freedom that's that's authentically ours in order to reach out and love and care for others and set aside our our desires for privacy or some recreational pursuit that we feel is legitimately ours to set that aside if necessary in order to To love and to serve and to give and to care for others. We want our lives to be filled to to the brim with all that you are. May we eat and drink of you. We ask in Jesus' name.